This episode is brought to you by Tovito, the Jewish video streaming app that parents call a lifesaver. With Tovito, I'm confident that when I give my kids video time, I'm giving them content that aligns with my family's values in a safe space. Whether it's because you're traveling with your kids, they're home from school while you're trying to get ready for Passover, or you just want to reward them with movie night, Tovito is there for you. And now you can claim 15% off the annual subscription using the code JMM at checkout. That's only $84.99 a year to access videos you approve of and that kids love. My kids rave about Tobito, and hey, I do too. Go check it out at Tobito.com. That's T-O-V-E-E-D-O.com. And use the code JMM at checkout to get 15% off your Tobito subscription. Now, just in time for Passover, when the kids will be home or you'll be traveling, download Tobito for kosher entertainment that will keep the family happy. Claim 15% off with the code JMM at Tobito.com. Jewish Money Matters, episode 317, Ask Yael. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Friday, the 17th of March. How is everybody doing? Do I hear people in the audience making Passover plans, cleaning, planning, etc.? <laughs> I'm sort of there, sort of. I mean, I was out of town, and I'm recovering from that. I don't know. Going out of town, it's a little exhausting, for me lately. Um, But that said, there's something really exciting happening after Passover. That's going to be April 23rd. If you're in the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas, that's not where I'm from, but it's close enough. And that's where I'm going to be. Dallas, Texas, come meet me at the launch event of the Jewish Women Business Leaders Network Group. That's J-W-B-L-N-G. I am very excited to be presenting on Jewish strategies for career and financial fulfillment. This is, again, a Jewish Women Business Leaders Network. And this is their launch event. And I will be there April 23rd at 6.30 p.m. in the Hilton Richardson in Dallas. So if you're in the area and you're in a, you're a Jewish woman in business or in the corporate world, you're, you work outside the house or you run your own business, come on over, bring your friends who also um, are in that category or just want to learn about business or want to learn about you know Jewish strategies for career and financial fulfillment. Please, by all means, get your tickets before April 1st to get the early bird discount and buy them at $20. I mean, $20, that's really, really reasonable um, for what I expect to be a really, really wonderful event. You register and you get your ticket at jwblng.org forward slash events. That's jwblng.org forward slash events. So that's coming up for me and it's really, really exciting. Now, today, I want to speak briefly about 
the bank runs of last week. Some of you asked if I could explain that and what you should do, if there's anything you should do. I also have questions about podcasting and I have questions uh, podcasting on Micer. But before I do that, I want to head over to the Apple Podcast Review section and pick a reviewer of the week. And I also want to correct myself on a question that I answered two Fridays ago. This is actually very important that I do. But first, let's go to the Apple Podcast Review section. Our reviewer of the week will get a 20-minute session with me. And today we say thank you to Sweet Life 248 who left a review this past Tuesday. And she says, I think it's a she, she says, Thank you, Yael. Hands down, one of my favorite podcasts. Always fun, always relatable, always learn something new. I love the variety of guests Yael interviews and how she always provides practical takeaways in each episode. Well, thank you, Sweet Life 248. I am so glad that you are enjoying the show. And I'm glad that it's fun and relatable and it stays fresh and new and varied. I try. I'm glad um, I'm glad it's working. So please be in touch with me and I'll send you a link for us to connect. Looking forward. So let's talk about the correction, my correction, <laughs> correcting myself. So two weeks ago, I answered a question from Eliza on her um, defined benefits pension plan and rolling it over. I don't know if you guys remember, but that was on Ask Friday, SEL Friday two weeks ago. And a big, big thank you to Ariel Serber on LinkedIn, my friend on LinkedIn, who heard the episode and kindly pointed out that I may have oversimplified this a whole lot. And I'll give a shout out to Ariel soon, but let me tell you about our conversation. He basically said that when it comes to rolling um, deferred pension, um, I mean, defined benefit pension plans, it might be more nuanced than just a traditional 401k rollover, which is kind of how I explained it. And that really, Aliza and her husband should talk to a certified financial planner about this because the situation might need some more analysis. So we had a whole conversation about that. And yeah, we agreed that I should come back and tell them oh, this is a little bit more complicated and just go meet with somebody. And, you know, in particular, the issue here is that when we're talking about, um, defined benefit pension plans, there's there's a guaranteed pension piece that Ariel was explaining to me that makes it more nuanced. So we both concluded the best thing here is to consult with a fee-based financial advisor, a fiduciary, we've mentioned this on the show several times, who can look at the terms of the plan, who can look at their, you know, your other assets, Aliza, and your husband's and social security, your incomes, etc. So I am so glad that Ariel reached out to me. One, because I want to do the right thing for my audience. Um, so whenever I need to correct myself, I wanna I wanna be told if I said something wrong. And two, because, and I want to, obviously, I want to give you the correct information as best I can. And But two, the second reason is it, I was reminded of something that I assumed I'd mastered by now, and I haven't. And I think it happens all the time. And that is, listen to your intuition. When I answered Elisa's question, I had a very strong feeling that this required more research and that I was treating it as a 401k rollover when it might be more complex. And I remember I, I told this to Ariel. I'm like, I'm actually so glad you told me because I had a big hunch that I was I wasn't just I wasn't doing the right thing. Um, but I I went with it and I didn't listen to my intuition. And hey, my intuition was right. So thank you, Ariel. Um, the prudent thing would have been to just say, eh, this is a little bit complex, and it's one of those things you. You really want to sit with a financial advisor, so especially with a fiduciary financial advisor. So that's what I'm telling you now, Aliza. And Aliza, um, 
just please make an appointment um, with somebody. Um, I don't think Ariel server works as one, although I believe he has a CFP certification. Um, but I, but you can reach out on LinkedIn and you can ask him. And I'm sure, um, I'm pretty sure he's more focused on business owners. Um, but anyway, his content is great. So you anyway want to connect with him. Um, he might be able to point you in the right direction. I also have some ideas. You and in fact, I think I've told this to Elisa before, if it's the same Elisa, you might want to look in and in napfa.org. That's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. You might look for some fiduciaries in your area. You always can ask friends and family also. Um, some other people who come to mind, uh, you could reach out to uh, Joe Salcihai, who's been on the show, and I know he does consultations. Um, I think if you go on his website and the Stacking Benjamins website, you'll see that he does a fee-only consultations. And finally, another name that comes to mind is you can always reach out to Selwyn Gerber, who's also been on the show. And I, I although I believe Selwyn and his firm charge a percentage of assets managed, managed not not fee only, but you can ask, they might. Um, so try those avenues and do, do you know, do get this conversation going um, with a fee only financial advisor who can guide you on what to do with this defined benefit pension plan. All right. And thank you. Thank you, Ariel Server, for listening and for reaching out. I really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, there's men in the audience. This is like a new phenomenon. <laughs> but you are more than welcome to be here, uh, men. So Let's talk about the S, um, SVB failure, Silicon Valley Bank. And what does that mean for you? <laughs> I'm going to explain very briefly and hopefully very simply what happened. I mean, it's not super complex. Um, and then I'm going to give you my two cents on what I think you should be doing. And I, I guess, yeah, we could probably get a lot fancier and technical explaining this, but this is really not my intent. My intent is to give you some basic understanding of the situation enough to help temper any feelings of confusion or unrest or even fear, just to clarify a little bit the situation so that then, you know, kind of like keep it all in perspective. So Silicon Valley Bank, that's uh, a California-based bank that was, um, it was primarily used by VC firms, venture capitalists and startups in the tech industry, um, which I should note it's a sector that is particularly sensitive to changes in the economy, like the rise of interest rates and the 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 loss, the decline of interest in uh, public offerings and IPOs, etc. So, okay, so why did so many startups and high tech companies bank with SVB? Is because the bank was willing to take more risks than other banks, basically. Um, now, with their deposits, with the deposits of these high tech companies, and the and you know another um, another companies like venture capitals and other you know kind of companies in that's in the high tech sector, let's say, um, what SB SVB used to do is um, they invested in long term U.S. Treasuries or bonds. However, as interest rise. And I know you're aware that interest rate have been rising, right? You know, you know that. Well, what happens is that bonds and treasuries values fall. And so this left Silicon Valley Bank with a portfolio of bonds that were worth less, less money. So that's kind of the backdrop. Now let's go back to the depositors, the companies, the business accounts that um, the businesses that held accounts in this bank. These companies were getting less money from investors. And they still have their 
expenses. They're very high expenses. So they had to start dipping into savings to keep their operations running, which it's totally fine. But the problem is that the bank didn't have the cash on hand to liquidate the deposits from their high-tech clients because the cash was tied up in long-term investments, meaning in these long-term bonds that I just mentioned. So in an ideal world, they would have kept their bonds till maturity and be fine. But being they needed the cash, the bank started selling their bonds, except now they had to sell them at a significant loss because remember, bond prices are down. So SVV um, sold $21 billion in bonds, but it still fell short because the bond prices were down. Um, and so what they tried to do is they tried to raise money. They tried to raise an additional $2 billion from investors to cover costs, but they couldn't raise the money. Once this became public, it cost a bank run. And, you know, with social media and all that, like things, be- things moved a lot quicker than I guess in you know in previous generations right that it means that people panicked and started quickly withdrawing all their money from SVV um, you know not just take dipping into their savings to you know pay make payroll this you know this Friday but just literally just withdrawing all their money so um, you know unlike personal banking these clients of Silicon Valley Bank, as I said, the high tech companies, they had much larger accounts. So we're talking very, very big accounts. So it didn't take long for money to diminish during this bank run um, with causing like this whole snowball effect. And, and also most of these customers had deposits more than the $250,000 FDIC limit or the, the amount of money that's insured by the FDIC. And we'll talk that, about that in a second. So the stock of the bank plummeted on March 7th. And on March 8th, the California regulators shut the bank down and they place the bank under the um, FDIC. So what is the FDIC? It's a Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And it's an independent agency that was created by Congress which, among other things, ensures customers' deposits up to $250,000 per customer per bank account. And the standard insurance amount, again, it's it's $250,000. So um, if you open a deposit account in an FDIC-insured bank, you're automatically covered up to that amount. And we'll talk a little bit about um, how to, I guess, have different types of accounts um, so that you get more insurance. But, but basically, that's like what you need to know. So the FDIC took over uh, the deposits and now it's handling all transactions and depositors started receiving access to their money on March 13. And even those who had more than $250,000 at the bank, which again is the limit for insurance, are going to be getting their money back. Basically, the US government announced that it, it they they are guaranteed to cover all the deposits at this bank and it's not coming from taxpayers money but it's coming from something called the deposit insurance fund which is part of the FDIC and is something funded quarterly uh, by quarterly fees that are paid by these financial institutions which are FDIC insured um so basically the this deposit insurance fund has over I think I read it's over $100 billion in it, um, which the, the Secretary of the Treasury said was more than fully sufficient to cover both 
Signature, I mean, both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank's depositors. Now, I just told you about a new bank, <laughs> another name, Signature Bank. And I was just telling you about Silicon Valley Bank. So what's up? And you might be wondering, oh, yeah, I did read about that in the news. Um, what happened there? So let me tell you, it's it's kind of a similar story. Um, again, it could probably, there, there might be more detail to it. I don't want to make it too complex. But basically, Signature Bank, now we're talking about New York-based regional bank. Um, it actually had become, I think, one of the leaders in cryptocurrency lender um, lending. It was one of a handful of banks that was lending in that sector and accepting crypto deposits. And two days after SVB's failure, the Signature Bank also failed because of a similar bank run. Business customers who had more than $250,000 in their accounts started questioning whether those deposits were safe, not only because they had more than $250,000, but also because they were concerned that the bank had exposure to cryptocurrency and would not be able to cover their deposits. So they started to pull out the money, their money and transfer it to other institutions where they felt their deposits were safer. Uh, bank run again and again, the FDIC stepped in and you know the end of the story. What I want to get into now is the question of, should you be worried, right? And what you should be doing? The answer is, is no, I don't think you should be worried. Maybe we talk a little bit about this whole FDIC insurance before I, I guess I hit the bottom line here. But, um, you know, your money is covered most likely by FDIC insurance and possibly even more since, as we saw in this case, the government is likely to step in. But there's a big however here, and I've mentioned it on the show before. It's always just best to keep only up to the $250,000 limit. Like even if you think the government could step in and all that, just like just stick to the limit in one particular bank per ownership category. And so here's what you could do. If you have more than $250,000 in liquid assets, what you could do is the simplest thing, number one, would be open accounts and say two different banks. Like that's just pretty simple, right? Have $250,000 in, in one account in one bank and $250,000 in another, both of them FDIC insured banks, right? Another thing you could do is you could add a joint owner. You can have joint accounts. I mean, joint accounts with two or more owners are insured up to $500,000 total. So you would be doubling the insured amount in deposits at a, at a single bank. I'm talking about at one single bank. You can add another owner in, in a joint account. So this could be a spouse, a parent, a child. So you could do something like that. You could also open, uh, you could have an account open in the same bank, but it's in a different ownership category because FDIC insurance coverage applies to several ownership categories. Some of these are, like we said, single accounts owned by one person, joint accounts owned by more than one person. It could be a business account. It could be an um, employee benefit plan account. And there are others, but I don't want to get too complex here, okay? So you can have up to $250,000 in any of these, in each of these accounts or the deposits in those, and the deposits in those accounts would be FDIC insured. You can also join a credit union which it's similar to the FDIC, the National Credit Union Share Insurance Funds Fund insures up to $200,000, $250,000 per person, per institution, per ownership category at those credit unions that have National Credit Union Administration membership. But, and again, there might be other ways around this, but like just understand the basic principle, okay? 
let's answer the question again what do you do and let's get to the bottom of it the bottom of it is that one should be prudent but not panic if you're banking with an fdic insured bank and you have less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per account per ownership category then please move on with life and be happy if you have deposits that are that after hearing this you feel are not insured because you're above that limit and it's not spread out by ownership category um, then just make the necessary adjustments like we said before you give you some options but other than that i say we just tune out the noise obviously i'm saying do that but other than that which most people i think i mean this might not apply although i did read on linkedin about a woman who has seven hundred thousand dollars in cash um, in one bank account i mean I, I thought that was like crazy i'm like somebody please talk to this woman and i think it was it was a post uh, on a jewish i don't know if it was something in one of these other uh, jewish platforms anyway i digress let's just tune out the noise and do nothing or basically keep doing what we're doing okay and yes the economy is rough like right now there's noise it's like every day there's a new catastrophe story no one can predict what's going to be but here's the news flash people that has always been the case the world is unpredictable it's not just now it's just that at other times we have a certain illusion of control of predictability and perhaps at times like this the illusion is somewhat shattered right but the reality is that you never have control like you really never do so don't put your trust and confidence in the banking system or in the fdic or in the banks or in your dollar bills just do what's prudent within the realm of nature which is okay if banks have fdic insurance that's what i do right and beyond that trust in god above that whatever is is for the best and have a good night's sleep. <laughs> you, you're, you're entitled to one because you have the best, uh, you're doing the right thing. You're just, uh, you have the best partner, okay? So that's that. I hope that was helpful. That was kind of a long explanation, but hey, we needed to tackle this. So now we're shifting gears to a question that came from Devorah on WhatsApp. And she said, what do you do, Yael, when you record and you record an episode and you don't like most of it? Well, Devorah, I wish I could tell you that that's never happened, <laughs> but it has. And the answer is, I don't air it. That's the answer. I don't air it. It's not very often that I don't air an episode. In fact, in six years, I can count the number of times with the fingers in one of my hands. Um, it's been like four times, maybe five at most. But yeah, if it's not sal sal salvageable, yeah, if it's if the episode is not salvageable for whatever reason, sometimes, you know, because sometimes editing helps sometimes, but some, sometimes you just, you know, the editing won't help or you know that it will require so much editing that it's just not worth it. Or sometimes you just realize that for whatever reason, this episode goes against the values that you stand for or it's not the message the turn that the conversation took or whatever it is it's just not the message that you want to associate yourself with or commu communicate to your audience i mean all of those reasons all of those are reasons why an episode might not make it might not make the cut and it's okay it's your show you get to curate it and you have a responsibility to try to do what you think is best for your audience so if it doesn't make the cut it doesn't make it. You're not obligated to your guest. You are obligated, though, to your audience. So hope that helps. Lastly, Steph asks on Instagram, Shalom Yael, Chag Sameach. She wrote this on Purim. I come from a mixed religious home. I think she, me she means like 
two different faiths. I didn't realize Jews have tithes. I thought it was just Christians. I thought Jews just donate to charity. Where and how do you give tithes? Is it 10% of salary? Thanks for the question, Steph. This is, in fact, a common misconception. But the fact is that tithing is a Jewish thing. <laughs> the Christian faith took it from the Jewish faith. Um, and, and that's all good, but we have to know that it's a Jewish thing. It, it's just that it seems like they have given it a lot more PR, um, and, and that's fine. I remember I had Marla Letitia here um, years ago, and she's from Vegas, and she... I want to say she said it in the episode, but a part of me feels like she told me privately, you know, a lot of conversations happen like before the record button happens, but there was like this really nice story where she like, again, she was sitting at a Federation um, luncheon, Jewish Federation luncheon, and the speaker started talking about tithing. And she like looked at the people on the table with her and she's like, because she, um, she lives in Vegas and she said like, I'm so, we're so influenced by the Mormon faith. Like there's so many Mormons here. So I'm like, What? Like, this is ours? I always thought it was a Mormon thing. <laughs> and it was like such a big wake-up call for her. And by the way, she's like the biggest evangelist on my certain after she discovered it's really hers, right? So yes, I mean, some other faiths might have given it a lot more PR. But as you well point out, Steph, um, many Jews don't even realize that this is theirs. This is their mitzvah. It's something that is part of the code of Jewish law. And especially in less observant circles where there's limited education when it comes to Jewish life and observance, miser or tithing is not something that makes it to the top of the curriculum, right? It, it doesn't, doesn't make it to the curriculum at all, I think. Um, whereas giving tzedakah, which is commonly but inaccurately translated as charity, does tend to make it to the curriculum. And that's a good thing. But perhaps it does make it to the curriculum because it doesn't obligate as much as miser. It has a lot more flexibility. And so in a world in a, in a world where we want where or in that world where perhaps the the philosophy is just to um you know teach children about judaism but not really teach them about the do's and the don'ts it would make sense that when it comes to money all we teach is something beautiful and altruistic like charity and that's non-committal so to speak and and or or it's flexible in terms that it doesn't impose on anyone and doesn't obligate anyone it's something that we do as jewish people because it's the right thing to do and we want to instill in Jewish children the importance of kindness and charity or tzedakah, again, a mistranslation. Um, so, you know, again, teaching about tzedakah, that's a great way to to instill that, 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 that the importance of kindness, right? Now, don't get me wrong. This is a good thing. But the problem is that it leaves so much important nuance out and it deprives people from the understanding that there is a real obligation and it's a beautiful obligation and when people discover it they're actually really happy like i gave the example of marla Letitia, who's really really happy to discover that this is something that brings blessing and that it it it, it, it carries a certain way of responsibility and people are happy to learn it but it's some it just didn't nobody told them right um and, and the nuance here is that there's there's a financial obligation that every Jew has to give miser or to tithe. So we've spoken many times on this show about the difference between both, between miser and tzedakah. Miser is 10% of your after-tax income, which goes to those people in need. And tzedakah is another obligation, which on a financial level is any amount above that 10% minimum, minimum of miser or tithe. 
and it goes beyond financial, whereas Miser is just, we're talking dollars and cents. Tzedakah is dollars and cents when it regards to anything above that minimum of 10% of tithes or Miser, but it also includes all giving in other categories, meaning giving of your other resources, like shelter, like uh, food, like clothes, like time, like advice, right? So in terms of how we give tithe, Steph, we have a lot of episodes on it as well here on the show. Um, so, you know, I'll just say that, yes, my is 10% of your after-tax income. Uh, if, you know, if you're a salaried employee, that's pretty straightforward. Otherwise, it's of whatever salary you pay yourself if you're a business owner. In terms of what you ask about who or where do you give it, you give it to the needy and there are orders of who takes priority over who. So I'm going to refer you to episode 274, where I go over those categories and those the order of priority. But then there's other episodes that, like I said, you know, have, we've really addressed the topic several times. So I'm going to refer you to so episode 274, as I just said, then episode 287, I believe episode 193, episode 292 with Carrie Rothenberg Friedman. She's the founder of My Tzedakah. That might give you some nice insights. Episode 301. And I'll also give a shout out to episode 254 with Sarah Blau. I think that there's also a nice conversation on on charity there and giving. So um, yeah, we have a lot of episodes on the topic. So go explore those that I've mentioned, 274, 287, 193, 292, 301, and 254. That's just where I would start. But otherwise, um, you know, just binge listen to the podcast if you're new here. And that is a wrap, my friends. I hope everybody is doing well. And I will see you back here on Monday. We're going to talk about attachment theory and how that affects our money mindset and behavior. Very interesting psychological conversation um, with a New York City psychotherapist. So we're going to talk, we're going to be doing that next week. You can always send in your questions. Please continue to send them in. They're always so interesting and they keep me on my toes. So send those in via email, yael at yaeltrush.com or DM me on Instagram at Yael Trush, and I will see you here next week. Please leave a review and rating. I'm happy to have had a reviewer of the week. Very exciting. So leave a review and rating and hopefully next week there will be another reviewer of the week. We'll be giving a shout out to and offering a 20 minute session. And if you're in the Dallas area, please remember jwblng.org forward slash events. Okay, I'll see you here next week. Have a Shabbat Shalom. 